From the Salvation Army, welcome to the Holiness Podcast with Lieutenant Colonel Vern Jewett. In this monthly Bible study, we'll be exploring God's gift of holiness, which is offered to every Christian. To download this month's study guide, visit us at salvationarmysoundcast.org slash holiness. Hi, this is Vern Jewett, and uh, we welcome you to the Holiness Podcast. We have been on a journey through uh, Acts 15, 16, and uh, we'll be going into 17 next month uh, as we study Paul's second missionary journey, which he took with Silas. And we've been studying under the theme of the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It's been uh, a wonderful and interesting thing to look at how the Holy Spirit guides directly in uh, the circumstances of life. And we have so many activities and stories that are recorded on this journey that uh, we're learning a lot about the guidance of the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned at the end of last month's podcast, I want to slip back and do a study this month on the Council of Jerusalem, which is recorded in Acts chapter 15, and which is the immediate catalyst for the second missionary journey. The council, we will see, is called because there is a dispute and an issue that uh, is so severely important that they need to gather people together and uh, make some decisions. And the result of those decisions leads Paul and eventually Silas, supposed to be Barnabas, but we saw how they uh, had a disagreement. And when things worked out, Paul and Silas went on the second missionary journey. So our agenda for this study will be first to look at the issues and events of the council. We're going to look carefully at what exactly happened Uh, up through the first 20 or so verses in the 15th chapter, we're going to see that the theme of the uh, dispute and the issue at hand is really about saving grace. And then we'll review how the Holy Spirit guided through this momentic and historic church gathering. And we'll be looking particularly at the leaders and how the Holy Spirit uh, guided them through the process. It's such an important part of holy living to acknowledge and to be constantly aware that the power comes from God the Holy Spirit who lives within us. So with that in mind, I invite you to turn to your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Acts chapter 15. And we're going to begin uh, reading right at verse 1. Actually, let me begin with a couple verses from the end of chapter 14. We find Paul and Barnabas in Antioch. And reading the last two verses of chapter 14, verse 27 and 28, on arriving there in Antioch, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So we have Paul and Barnabas 
in Antioch, and things are going well in the church there. Now we begin our story for today with chapter 15. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp disagreement and dispute with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So, some people arrive from Jerusalem and institute what is not a small dispute. In fact, the magnitude of the issues involved called for a summit meeting. And Paul and Barnabas and some others headed straight for Jerusalem. Now, reading between the lines, these men from Jerusalem undoubtedly conveyed that they were speaking for the Jerusalem church and the, and the leaders. And the debate needed attention from Paul and Barnabas because the issue is one of great significance. So we pick up at verse 3, and the debate begins, and we're going to read verses 3, 4, and 5 to get a picture of what is happening once uh, Paul and Barnabas and the team arrive in Jerusalem. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So this is a situation and a happening in the early church that we have dealt with before. We often call these men uh, Judaizers because, as you can uh, hear, they insist on circumcision and obeying the law of Moses for any new Christians, and in this case, particularly for Gentile Christians. Now, I want you to notice in verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. And when the council comes to orders, we really have three groups of people here. We have the apostles and the elders who have been mentioned twice, the apostles being the original uh, 12, the elders being the leaders of the Jerusalem church, which is the home church, if you would, uh, of uh, Christianity. And we also have the missionaries in Paul and Barnabas. Three people are going to speak as we read what happens in the next few verses in the council. And the three speakers can be identified as Peter, the chief apostle, James, the chief elder, the leader of the Jerusalem church, and Paul, the chief missionary. And so as we read 
Uh, We're going to hear what Peter has to say, in particular, his theology and his conclusion. So beginning again with verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. So, Peter immediately refers to his experience with Cornelius. Now, that was recorded back in chapter 10 of Acts, and Probably, it is now 10 years since Peter had that experience. It's interesting. Uh, We've talked about the experience with Cornelius, but God was preparing Peter with that experience not to minister to the Gentiles, because after he had that experience, he came back to Jerusalem, and he's been an apostle actually to the Jews in Jerusalem ever since. I believe it's clear that God was preparing Peter for this moment. And what is his theological pronouncement? It was that God settled all this and made no distinction between us and them. Well, the issue is clear. The issue is stated in verse 1 when it was raised back in Antioch by the men from uh, Judea. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And then verse 11, where we ended with Peter at the council saying, No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. So when I say that this is a historic and uh, incredibly important council, what is at stake here is the issue of the nature of saving faith. Now, there's a text here that I'm going to mention later. It's kind of an auxiliary text, but it's a truth that's very important and maybe as important today in the church for us as it was at the time of this council and dispute. It's actually taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. That verse says this, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, that truth, I think, should often be part of the discussion of the church today as we engage the world. I'm afraid that many of the same issues that underlay this dispute recorded in Acts 15 are very prominent today, uh, and we're going to be able to apply it when we come to the end of the lesson 
to situations that are very alive in the church today and of great concern to many Christian leaders. But the situation here is that circumcision is a requirement, should be, for Gentiles to become Christians. Now, why is that a challenge to grace? Because it's essentially saying, be circumcised, and then we will accept you, and then you can receive Christ. I would characterize this uh, particular false teaching as one of many that could be categorized a fall from grace. Now, I've heard that phrase my whole life growing up in the church, and I always thought that it meant someone lost their salvation when they fell from grace. But in reality, in the New Testament, it means exactly what it says. It is a fall from grace back into law and depending upon other things other than saving faith. So the fall from grace in this situation is that Christians pronounce judgment on unbelievers, the uncircumcised, fail to love them and to share the gospel. What's at stake here is that you must do something, according to the Judaizers, as a prerequisite in order for Christians to accept you and in order for you to present yourselves to Christ. Now, this is why I say this is a very live issue today. I've been in ministry a long time, and I've observed literally dozens of times situations where it seems we expect people to clean themselves up before they can uh, become a Christian. That's exactly what is taking place uh, in this particular story. Let me give you a situation that I encountered a few years ago that is comparable to that. I was teaching in East Africa, and one of the great issues in the church in East Africa is monogamy. Uh, Polygamy is rampant and has been part of the African culture for centuries. And as people have come to accept Christ and uh, become Christians and uh, become part of the church, they encounter the teaching in the Bible that uh, you only have one wife and uh, that there's only a marriage is between one husband and one wife. And all of a sudden you have a challenge to the cultural situation and the lifestyle in which they have come and received Christ. Well, to put it simply, uh, this was when I asked the delegates of the seminar that I was teaching, who were all Salvation Army ministers, what issues were of concern to them. They were wrestling in their country with what to do with someone who had several wives and then accepted Christ. Should they require them to divorce all but one wife? and then say, we can accept you now because you can receive Christ now that you only have one wife? Well, the attendant circumstance that was so tragic is that a man who had several wives, if he put any of them away, that was the equivalent of a death sentence. Their ability to live is taken from them. They would be cast out and eventually They would die of the inability to be cared for because they lost 
their husband and the support that came with their family. So you can see this was a uh, particular issue that is fraught with death or life implications. Well, the challenge to grace you see there is that you have to do this before you can receive Christ. And the fall from grace is that Christians are pronouncing judgment on unbelievers, polygamists, and failing to love them and share the gospel. Well, the end result uh, of their uh, situation and decision by uh, the church was that someone did not have to put away all their wives and, uh, and sentence them literally to death by doing that. And they could become believers. I think the compromise that came in the church, and it still is a live issue in parts of Africa, was that they could not take leadership in the church if they had more than one wife. But you see, the situation is the same. The fall from grace is the same, that we require something before we allow someone or believe that someone is ready to receive Christ. I don't know about you, but down through the years, I've heard the gospel presented with caveats such as, if you want to be saved, you got to stop smoking, (laughs) or you must be baptized by immersion, or you must give up your racial biases, or like in Jerusalem in this case, you must be circumcised. When that approach is used, the gospel does not move out in the way God intended it to. So Peter, when he challenges this requirement and decision in verse 10 says, Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? You see, Peter's conclusion is that the Gentiles don't need to obey the Mosaic law to be saved. His reference to putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples would have been understood by everyone present there as a reference to Jewish law. F.F. Bruce tells us in those days, a Gentile who was converting to become a Jewish proselyte by undertaking to keep the law of Moses was said to take up the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. So Peter goes right to the heart of the matter. If the yoke of the gospel as presented to them is too heavy to bear, Gentiles will not be saved. Now, friends, this is not to say that the law is bad. Jewish converts, if they were Jews, would be expected to continue to obey the law of Moses to the best of their ability. And even Gentile converts would find much good in the law of Moses that would contribute to their own growth and sanctification. But the law was not to be part and parcel of the presentation of the gospel of salvation. If Peter, the most influential leader of that day, had not been correct in his theology, the expansion of the Christian movement could have halted then and there. And Peter solidifies his point by telling them what they already knew, namely that Jews couldn't be saved by the law either, because virtually all of them found it impossible to keep. The yoke of the law was something that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. Let's look at verse 12 and what happens next. The whole assembly became silent 
as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So after Peter was finished speaking, now it is time for Paul and Barnabas to speak. That's a very interesting thing. Peter drops from the scene at this point and is never mentioned again in the book of Acts. But here he plays a very prominent role. But now Paul and Barnabas speak, and they tell of the wonders, the miraculous signs that God had done among the Gentiles. And when they finished, as we read on in verse 13, James spoke up, brothers, listen to me. Simon, or Peter, has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. And now we hear this Old Testament quotation. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. So James says, brothers, listen to me, refers to what Simon has said, has just listened to what Paul and Barnabas have described in the moving of the Spirit among the Gentiles, and then quotes Scripture, which is a very important part of how this issue is being handled and is very important for us today. Scripture always plays a role in bringing answers to issues that potentially could divide us. Well, then he says in verse 19, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So there were some diplomatic concessions that were made because certain elements of Jewish practice would be well known all across uh, the diaspora, the Mediterranean world, where there were Jews in synagogues. But they were uh, rather light in terms of requirements. And the wonderful affirmation is that the Gentiles are free to receive Christ by faith without becoming Jews or getting circumcised or keeping the law. Now I want us to stop and put it in the context of our study of holiness. Interesting story, wasn't it? It was an amazing moment in the history of the church. I don't know about you, but most of us are Gentiles. And the very possibility for us to receive Christ by faith and to clarify that we are saved by grace through faith alone is settled here at this Council of Jerusalem that we just have uh, studied. 
we first see the guidance of the Holy Spirit by uh, the appeal to the Holy Spirit's affirmation of the Gentiles. This was very powerful back in verses 8 and 9. When Peter makes his case, he gives testimony that God gave the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles just as he did to us, and that God has made no distinction between us and them. That's a powerful statement by Peter, and the proof of the pudding is that God the Holy Spirit did exactly the same thing for the Gentiles that he had done for the Jews. And then he says, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now, you see, the Holy Spirit is only mentioned in verse 8, but he's prominent throughout the whole story. He purified their hearts by faith. That is nothing more or less than what we know and have studied as heart holiness. The work of the Holy Spirit includes purifying our hearts. And what a strong appeal and what a what incredible influence it would have for Peter to simply stay, say, look, the Holy Spirit decided this by granting power and purifying the hearts of the Gentiles just as he did to us. And then I believe that we can see the Holy Spirit guiding the leaders of this historic church gathering if we stop and look uh, for just a little bit. The Holy Spirit isn't specifically mentioned, but the stamp and seal of the Holy Spirit is all over this story and this event. And the reason I wanted to make it a subject for uh, our study is that we have not talked about how the Holy Spirit works in church gatherings and in the issues that face the church at large. We have often mentioned, in fact, we took several months of podcasts and talked about corporate holiness, the social aspects of holiness. Holiness is not just an individual matter, but we are holy in the midst of our brothers and sisters, and our holiness and their holiness is linked. But we have never talked about God the Holy Spirit working through the workings of the church. Peter's example is, I think, a glaring one. You may remember, and I think I want to read Galatians, the second chapter. Most scholars believe this happened before the Jerusalem Council, that Paul had had to correct Peter in Antioch. And I want to read the verses. It's recorded in uh, Galatians chapter 2. And you'll remember this story, many of you. When Peter came to Antioch, Paul says in his letter to the Galatians, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, and of course, that would have been men from the Jerusalem church who were Jewish, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. 
When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs and so on? Now, the reason I want to mention that is that, again, most scholars believe this probably happened five or six years before the event, the council at Jerusalem that we're studying today. And do you see a person who feels humiliated and is wanting to uh, express any kind of opposition to Paul because of what had happened in the past? Absolutely not. In fact, Peter spoke up on behalf of the cause of Paul and Barnabas even before they themselves had spoken. Isn't it wonderful that we all can grow in grace and grow in the Lord? And the growth that Peter has made uh, is evident and is a key to the success of this council, to his pronouncing the theological truth that will win the day. Sometimes today, there are many unpleasant situations in the church that could be avoided if hurt leaders had been a little more like Peter. Many times what some characterize as battles over principles in the church are fanned by leaders who have not crucified the flesh. And rather than being a battle of principles, it's really a clash of personalities. And as we look at not only Peter, but at James, did you see how James did not take sides in the conflict? And in fact, he went against his own preference. He was the leader of the Jerusalem church, and those in his church were all Jewish. Wise leaders sometimes have to go against their own preference. We may personally not like a certain kind of modern music that others feel is effective when we're in a certain place or with a certain group of people, but we must not let our taste influence what is best for the kingdom. James' decision, furthermore, was based on Scripture and the wisdom that he showed, the openness of Peter and James to make sure, as it says later in the story, that they were of one accord and one mind is evidence of the presence and power of God's Holy Spirit. In many contemporary conflict situations, I'm afraid it happens so much in the church in the United States today, Christians associate only with people who are on their side and cliques form in the church and they view each other as competitors. Acts 15 records an event when party spirit was defeated and theology won the day. And at the heart of it was godly leadership. When I insist to you that the Holy Spirit's stamp and seal is all over this story, I believe it's because you can look at those leaders and see the fruit of the Spirit. I don't think it's possible for us to overemphasize the importance of the teaching of the fruit of the Spirit. That is how we recognize Christ in one another. You can see love, joy, peace, patience. Especially you can see kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control 
in Peter and James and Paul in this story. In closing, the guidance of the Holy Spirit takes place not only with individual believers, but also in the church. We've done several Bible studies together, as I said, on the corporate part of holiness. But now we see that God, the Holy Spirit, works through the leaders and the conferences and the deliberations of our churches. And I believe as we come to a close of our study today, it is incumbent upon us to pray for our church leaders. I was so encouraged yesterday, the worship service that I attended had a message that was highlighted over and over again by the listing of the fruits of the Spirit. We need to pray for our church leaders and pastors and denominational leaders. They carry heavy burdens in today's world. There are huge issues threatening to divide and are dividing the church today. I often have mentioned that the issue, the broad issue of sexuality is the challenge of the church for this century. And there are denominations who are splitting and dividing over that issue. Beyond that, most church denominations in the United States are experiencing drastic reductions in membership and in attendance. We know the pandemic had its effect, but it's far more than that, friends. I would like to invite you to join me in a prayer. I'm going to use at the end of the prayer a beautiful chorus out of the Salvation Army's hymnal that we sing. It fits our Bible study today beautifully. And it addresses our need for the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And it's so encouraging to see how the Holy Spirit guides through the entire process of the council at Jerusalem and then the journey of Paul and Silas that follows. The Holy Spirit guides us today just as surely and just as powerfully. I'm changing just a couple of words when I get to that chorus to make it a corporate prayer, but would you join me as we pray to bring our podcast to a close? Heavenly Father, I lift to you today leaders in the church all over the world, and especially those here in the United States, and especially those with whom we serve. We know the burdens that they carry, and we know that they need your guidance day by day. And we pray that we will not be guilty in any way of sacrificing the reality of saving grace by imposing extraneous things upon people or expectations upon people instead of offering the gospel to them. Lord, help the church to remain pure in its sharing of the good news that anyone can be saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to remember that the power to address those things in our lives which are not what God would have us uh, be and do can only be addressed 
when the Holy Spirit has come into our life. As that 1 Corinthians passage told us, those who don't have the Spirit cannot receive the things of the Spirit. So help us to be faithful, and Lord, protect, guide, and direct our leaders. And I pray with these words, Holy Spirit, come, O come. Let thy work in us be done. All that hinders shall be thrown aside. Make us fit to be thy dwelling. Amen. Well, we will move to chapter 17 next week, continue with Paul and Silas on the journey, and I hope it has been helpful for you to look at how this journey came about and what an important and dynamic and critical event it was to settle that matter of saving faith. May God bless you, and we will see you next time. This is Vern Jewett signing off. Thanks so much for listening, and we'd love to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, or prayer requests. Visit us at SalvationArmySoundcast.org slash holiness. And if you're enjoying this Bible study, share it with a friend. They can subscribe wherever they get their podcasts. Thank you.